Good morning, everyone. Blessings to you in Jesus' name. It is so good to be with you this morning on this beautiful Sunday morning. Um, last week I, I was at Explore, I shared the word with him, and I, I was reminiscing about where we were at about two years back and how we were unable to come together like this. And for the most part, many of us were kind of doing church in bed. And so this morning, is, it's again quite a, a privilege and a pleasure for us to, to come together um, as God's called out ones who he has chosen um, to be alive and to be used by him in a season such as this. So I have been chatting with Andrew over the last few weeks and um, with great relish, I've kind of been looking at the, 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 the series in Revelation that you guys have been going through. And I said to him, wow, I would like to be able to get some of that. Um, unfortunately, we haven't been able to share with one another um, in a deeper sense about that. And I said to him, I'd actually like to do some of that at evening congregation. Um, but this morning, I would like to share with you some of what perhaps we've been looking at at Explore. Um, I think it's helpful and nice for us just to know where our different congregations are at in terms of the trajectory that we are following. And so this morning, I would like for us to consider the notion of leaving a legacy. And so this morning, I'd like us to consider again something that in no way is probably new to us, um, passing on what has been left to us, um, leaving a living legacy to the generation that we walk with and who will follow on from us. And so I would like for us this morning to consider the engagement that Jesus in particular had with receiving from those who went before him and then worked to pass on to the generation that followed on after him, and then to the generation that followed on after them, and so on and so on. And so I'd like for us this morning to again focus on legacy. Now when I think about that, I don't think that we often think of the gospel as something that we have received, engaged with, and then passed on, or left behind, as it were, in a sense. Because I think the gospel is like a, it's like this treasure that has been left to us, passed on to us. It's something that has changed our lives, but it's also not something that we can hoard or hold on to, because we have then got to leave it on to those who come after us. And this act of passing on this thing of great value, this treasure, in my mind is similar actually to leaving an inheritance. You can often tell, I think, what mattered most to a person by what they left behind and also who they left it to when they pass on from this world. While I was doing some reading, I I came across some interesting stories related to inheritance and legacy. Um, there was the story of a New York hotelier 
and a real estate billionaire named Leono Helmsley, who left $12 million to her pet dog. Quite interestingly, the dog's name was Trouble. <laughs> and this particular, there's actually a, a, an image of her up there, this particular pampered pooch received the largest bequest from her, while actually some of her human family members, um, in fact, two of her grandchildren, were cut out of the wool entirely. Ouch. So the dog came away <laughs> on top. Wow, that's quite a story. And then there's also the story of this Portuguese aristocrat who left um, huge amounts of his riches to strangers from a telephone directory. This gentleman named Luis Carlos de Camara, he left his wealth to 70 people who were listed in a Lisbon phone directory. Apparently what he did was he had two witnesses with him um, at a registry office and he selected at random names in a phone directory. And he actually did this 13 years before he passed. And then in 1968, there's this story of a British Hampshire resident um, who directed that his estate of in the amount of approximately 26,000 pounds be placed in a trust for no one other than Jesus Christ himself. And his will stipulated that if Jesus didn't collect the will or claim it within 80 years, it was to be passed back to the crown. And according to the lawyer who was handling this particular case, the main stumbling block would be the difficulty in the Lord Jesus Christ proving his identity to him. You know, when I, when I think about these kinds of cases, and there are probably more interesting ones beyond that, it's quite interesting just to consider with the current state of our world that people would think of clearer avenues um, to invest in, in terms of the generation that follows on afterwards. Now, as we think about that, it's actually quite interesting, I think, to consider what Jesus himself left behind in worldly terms. Because Jesus left behind no wife, no children, no money, no clothing, no businesses, in fact, no writings that were directly authored by him, no hymns, no valuable portraits, not even a small piece of the cross, not even a confirmed gravesite was left by Jesus. And so scarce a trace did Jesus leave that some have claimed that Jesus Christ was a myth. And the only things he left behind were people who believed his message. And so Jesus left his word, his teachings, and his church, a few hundred people at that stage when he passed. And these two legacies changed the course of history, we could argue, because everything passes away. Nations, professions, industries, families, possessions, political movements, 
houses, heirlooms, all of those things pass away except for Jesus' word, his teachings, and his church. And those were Jesus' priorities and his legacy. He's battened to be passed on, as it were. Because Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. In Matthew chapter 24 and verse 35. And then in Matthew 16 and verse 18, he also said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And so this morning, we could also ask ourselves, to what extent are we investing in what will last? With regards to our next generation, with regards to those who are going to follow on after us. What will your legacy reveal mattered to you most? Now, as we look at Jesus and we consider his life it seems that most of what Jesus did in the 30-odd years that he was on earth prepared him to be able to pass on something of eternal value and leave behind a living legacy, something that would not die. And as we know, Jesus started his ministry at age 30. Now, Jesus' preparation began for him as a child, Now, when we think of Jesus, we must remember that Jesus was fully divine, but he was also fully human. And so there are elements of Jesus' humanity that were fully reliant on him, receiving a legacy from those who had been used by God the Father before him. The generations before Jesus played a vital role in Jesus coming and fulfilling his mission. Jesus established himself, and he actually built on the foundation that the prophets, the kings, the priests, the rabbis, all of the followers of Yahweh who had come before him had laid before him. Because Jesus, as we know, didn't just show up at age 30 knowing everything. That's not what happened with Jesus. Jesus himself, the son of Joseph and Mary, or as he would have been called in the community back then, Yeshua ben Yosef, Jesus, son of Joseph, and later on, Yeshua Nazrayah, was someone who needed an investment from the generation that preceded him. So Jesus was born, he grew up, and he spent his ministry amongst people of faith, people who knew scripture really well, people who memorized scripture. And when I say scripture, I'm referring to the first five books of the Bible, or as it, was all, as it is also known, the Torah. They were people these people who Jesus grew up amongst, who openly debated the application of Scripture with enthusiasm. And they were people who loved God with all of their hearts, 
with all of their souls and with all of their might, as it says in Deuteronomy 6 and verse 5. And God the Father prepared this environment so carefully so that Jesus would have exactly the context that he needed to present his message of the kingdom of heaven, or as it would have been called in his language, Malchut Shemaim. And the followers, the people who listened to him, the crowds would have understood exactly what this Messiah, this Jesus, would have been saying, because Jesus fit his world so perfectly. And so as a boy, Jesus would have gone through the Jewish education system of that time called the Mishnah. And learning would have started for him at age five, and it would have revolved around engagement with scripture, engagement with Torah, and memorizing and interpreting scripture, because the Torah, the scripture, was foundational for them as a people. Now, though little is stated about Jesus' childhood, we do know that he grew up in wisdom as a boy, as it says in Luke chapter 2 and verse 52, and that he reached the fulfilling of the commandments, which also is stated in Luke chapter 2 and verse 41. And this indicates to us that that was the time where Jesus had his first Passover which would have for him been at age 12. And it would have been at this point of Jesus' first Passover in Jerusalem around age 12, where this ceremony, probably a ceremony that forms the background of today's bar mitzvah in Orthodox Jewish families, Jesus' excellent questions for the teachers in the temple at his first Passover indicate the study that he would have done. Because at that age, the best students would have been able to memorize Torah by memory, the first five books of the Bible. And at, then at age 15, Jesus would have engaged with what is called the Talmud, which incorporates making rabbinic interpretations or kind of exegesis. And then as we know, as it says in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus would have gone on to learn a trade, and he would have learned carpentry, as we know, around that life stage. Now, also what happens at age 15 is that only the best students, that group of boys who he would have been with, would have been allowed to continue their study beyond that stage. Otherwise, if your studies weren't that good, or if you were not one of the very best students, you would then follow on in a, in a career or in a trade and continue your internship. And so it appears to us that Jesus, Yeshua ben Yosef, would have been one of the best students because he did go on to study further. And study further and he became a teacher a rabbi, or as they would also have been called, a master. And then also, as we know from scriptural study, Jesus also spent time with his cousin John the Baptist in Luke chapter 3, and then he began his ministry later on at age 30, 
And this would also be the time in that culture that a rabbi could take on his own students. Now, as we think about this issue of passing on to the next generation what we have received, we see that this was even true for Jesus himself. Because Jesus had an entire infrastructure that, as it were, shaped his humanity, that shaped who he became. And there was a community of people being used by God the Father to pour into the life of Jesus. And Jesus needed that. And we need that. And the generation that follows on from us also need that. Because as I mentioned earlier, Jesus didn't just show up knowing everything. And neither do we, and neither does the generation that follows on from us. A few weeks back um, at Explore, we had a special celebration on Father's Day, and we had a few um, inspirational fathers on the stage, and um, Cindy Duval asked them some questions about fatherhood, and one of the one of the folk who she asked on the stage to be on the stage and to answer some questions was Stanley Mibay. And Stanley Mibay actually said something very dynamic about fatherhood and about raising the next generation. He said, it takes a village to raise a child. Now this saying, it takes a village to raise a child, is an African proverb that means that an entire community of people must provide for and interact positively with children so that those children can grow in a safe and healthy environment. And when we think about that saying, I think we can confess that this is something that we see also in the life of Jesus. There was a village around him who helped to raise him as a child. And the same should be true for us. But I think in our modern day society, somewhere along the way, we've lost this idea of village. It takes a village to raise a child. And I think we find ourselves today in a society that pursues individualism rather than unity or community. And as a result of this different trajectory, I think we see families missing out on crucial learning experiences and much-needed support systems. And in the end, many parents come away feeling isolated and alone in their struggles. And coupled with this, is the notion that ideas, or at least that children, don't have the opportunity to engage with diverse groups of people and personalities who, in effect, are discipling them, whether we like it or not. And so I want us to feel encouraged by this idea. And I want us to continue to build community with one another. A community 
that involves all aspects of who we are as a people. A people who have been called out from one kingdom to be members of a different kingdom, the kingdom of God. Next, I would like for us to consider the kind of people that Jesus thought to call and to use. So we've considered, as it were, what Jesus' journey was like and the influence that was enacted upon him as a young person into his adulthood. And then it came to a point where Jesus was now doing what had been done for him, pouring into the lives of those who followed on after him. When Jesus finally started his ministry as a teacher, and he was, as we know, an unconventional teacher, a foundational aspect of his mission was actually bringing together, calling people who would pass on what had been given them. And these people who Jesus called were not people who were to be reservoirs. They were people who had to be channels. His mercy, his love, his grace, his purpose had to flow through them. Now, when I think about this, I find it quite interesting that half of the group of disciples were fishermen. And I'd like us to consider this this morning from the Hebrew context. Now, when we think about that, I think Andrew, James, and John, Peter, who were the sons of Zebedee, they worked as fishermen. That is recorded for us in Matthew chapter 4. It describes there Jesus' encounter with them and his calling to them. But then also Thomas, Nathaniel, and Philip were in all probability also fishermen, as they were all together and fishing when Jesus appeared to them in John chapter 21, verses 2 and 8, following on after his resurrection. Now, as we think about the fact that Jesus could have probably chosen the very best Torah scholars, the very best people who were interpreters of Scripture, who would then carry on to become teachers, who would be able to argue with others from different faiths and different belief systems. It's actually quite an interesting notion that Jesus called the majority, or at least half of the disciples, from being fishermen. Because he settles for people who clearly here were not the best at memorizing scripture or interpreting it or teaching or debating Torah. He opts for fishermen. Because, and so we know they were not scholars. They were not academics. And what makes it interesting is the fact that the very task that they were being called to revolved around being able to communicate truth, being able to communicate this message, this precious, this precious message of the gospel. But I think there's something deeper at work in Jesus' decision to choose fishermen. And it relates in, in some way to the kind of, or at least the nature of the work that they did in their Jewish and Hebrew context. And I'd like to follow this tangent for a little bit. 
You see, the Jews had somewhat of a negative relationship with oceans, with seas, with large bodies of water. For them, oceans, seas, and large bodies of water were something like a double-edged sword. Jews were not seafarers. They were desert nomads. And they really controlled their seacoast. In fact, their father Abraham was a shepherd in the Negev, in the desert. The Israelites wandered in the desert for 40 years before they settled in the promised land. And to the Israelites, the sea probably appeared to them as something that could be seen as alien or threatening, a place of chaos, a place of disorder, a place that held great depths of unknown danger and uncertainty. And so they were a people who were not at home on the seas. And ancient cultural stories depicted the sea as that too. In turn then, with this interpretation of this entity, writers of scripture would use sea imagery or imagery related to the oceans also in a negative way. An example of this can be seen in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2, where the beginning of the world, the creation narrative, is described as a watery chaos, a prime evil sea from which God brought order. The sea also became a tool of God's judgment in the Exodus story when the Israelites needed to cross over the Red Sea. And then we also see it in the story of Noah, the sea becoming a tool of God's judgment. And then we know the story of Jonah, which revolves around Jonah being cast into the depths after he turned his back on God. And then there are many, many psalms that describe the sea as a dangerous place. Psalm 30, Psalm 69, Psalm 65, 77, 89, etc., etc. And so with that in the background, here comes Jesus. And he chooses men who work on and in that entity. This entity, entity that for the Jewish people represents chaos, danger, disorder, and has the potential even to take your life. And Jesus takes these men who work on the sea, who are familiar with oceans, he takes these men and he molds them into people who then instead of having to engage with the chaos and the disorder and the danger of the oceans and the seas, he takes them and he uses them to minister into the chaotic, the disorderly lives of the people who he loves. And fishermen are people who have boldness. And they have the bravery and the skill to venture out on the uncertainty of deep waters. And Jesus strategically, I believe, welcomes the skills 
that they bring. And so we see Jesus calling people who in our interpretation perhaps seem inadequate or mismatched for the task. And then on top of this idea that Jesus calls these people who appear inadequate and mismatched for this task, there's also good evidence to indicate that most of these men who Jesus called were in fact teenagers. Rodney and I had an interesting discussion about this earlier on in the week, about the notion that these disciples who Jesus called were in fact teenagers. And what's interesting to note is I think that our idea of who these men were has been shaped to a large extent by media, by the paintings that we see when we see the disciples being depicted or when we watch movies or films in modern day interpretation of what these men would be like. But it seems like scripture is actually pointing to something else. Scripture is actually sketching for us a different picture of who these men were that Jesus called. Now I think Peter and Matthew would probably have been the older disciples. Peter, as we know, was someone who was married, so he could possibly have been in the age of 20 to 25. Matthew, as well, might probably have been in that age bracket, with him having to be someone with a bit more maturity to be contracted to being a tax collector. But then I think most of the disciples were already apprenticing at their trades. And this would have been something that happened when men were in their teens. Jesus also calls his disciples little ones, as we know. And this would have been a little bit insulting if they were grown men, no matter how radical or gentle the rabbi would have been in that Hebrew context. And then we also know there's this story about James and John who had this mother named Salome who wanted to arrange spaces for her sons where they would be seated. And this would have been unusual in that context for a mother to come and negotiate for her adult sons. And then we know also Jewish law states that every man at that stage over the age of 20, had to pay temple tax. And there's the story in Matthew chapter 17, where Jesus instructs Peter to go and catch a fish, and within the fish's mouth, there would be the exact amount to pay the temple tax for Jesus and for Peter. However, Jesus doesn't mention any of the other disciples. And so it appears as though these men who Jesus initially called were in all probability teenagers. Now, I wouldn't build an entire doctrine on that. I think it's just interesting that we note that it's something to bear in mind. But what do we do with that? I mean, that's really interesting information, and it adds to our understanding of what would have happened in that context. But I think, as I consider for us where we are now, dealing with the current generation where we are in now. This generation who are the ones 
who more so are becoming the decision makers that sets the trajectory for where the world, in fact, is going. When I consider the season where we are in right now in the history of the world, along with the generation who are making the decisions, I must admit to you that I worry. The season that we are in currently and this generation that has to deal with it, the season has a lot of chaos in it. It seems as though there is a lot of disorder that needs to be dealt with in the season that we find ourselves now. A lot of uncertainty with apparently more uncertainty on the horizon. And there are many storms waging upon oceans and seas that are already rough right now. And so I wonder to myself, how will this generation, how will the next generation be able to be carriers of, be able to be the ones who communicate this message of the kingdom of heaven? And as I think about that, I am left with the understanding as I consider how Jesus works, that Jesus will draw the kind of young men and the kind of young women able to navigate this season while holding on to this precious message of the gospel in ways that I don't understand. But also beyond just having faith and trust in Jesus, I must also be someone who is active in the kind of community, active in the kind of village that will create the conditions needed for this generation to thrive in and so enable them to also pass on what they receive from us. As I close, I want to share with you a quote by John Alston. And he says, The only thing you take with you when you're gone is what you leave behind. Which is quite a thought. And it's something that I think ties into the message of the gospel. And it ties into what Jesus instructed us to do as his believers, as his followers, as ones who are carriers of this treasure, who are not reservoirs, but are channels through whom he is wanting to work in this generation and onward into the next. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you sent Jesus, your son, we thank you, Lord, for what he came and he started and he initiated. We thank you that he is the one who came and introduced to us the fact, the truth, that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Lord, as we think about the journey of Jesus' life and we consider ourselves and where we are at, Lord, we ask that you would help us to be faithful also in passing on this faith that you have given to us, to the next generation. 
We want to be part of the light that shines in the creeping darkness of our land. We want to be ones who are part of the carriers of this message, not only into Cape Town, but into South Africa and into the world. And so, Father, we ask this morning as we think about this idea of legacy, that you would come and help us to reevaluate where we are at. Because we eagerly desire to have your kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.